Hello, this is Oro Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. In following uh, the Catholic news, you know that Pope Francis just recently visited Iraq, and there he tried to give the support he could to the beleaguered Christian community there. The church in Iraq is known as the Chaldean Church, and what's great about it is our readings uh, from Second Chronicles and Psalm 137 are about the Chaldeans, because as one, Psalm 137 uh, says, the Jewish people are taken captive over to Babylon, which is there in Chaldea, modern-day Iraq. And there they sit by the river, and they hang their harps up in the tree, and they say, how can we sing our songs in a strange land? Because they want to go home. The Jewish people will be banished to Chaldea, to Iraq, for 70 years. And what they're suffering there by the River Kabar, a canal probably south of what we think of as modern-day Baghdad, but back in the day, the, the big city there was Babylon. They're suffering what the ancients would call nostos. Nostos is a really important theme in ancient literature because it's just part of the human condition. Nostos means homecoming. You know, the reason I like to talk about the pagan Greeks, uh, Homer and Eshley, Sophocles and Euripides, is that you can learn about a lot about the human condition from reading the Greek tragedians or the uh, myths of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, you know, there's the big Trojan War, and if you remember, the Greeks are over there for 10 years fighting. Finally, they destroy the uh, city of Rome, uh, city of Troy. Agamemnon wants to go home, so he gets his booty, all of his concubines, uh, especially Cassandra, and he heads for home. If you remember, I mentioned it in the, in the play, Agamemnon, he comes home, and what, what greets him there? His wife, Clytemenstra who murders them because in order for a thousand Greek ships to sail to Troy 10 years ago, Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter Iphigenia. And so his homecoming, what a bust. The other great hero of the Trojan War was Achilles, but Achilles was given this choice between glory in battle and dying glorious or homecoming, staying at home having a kind of just a humdrum everyday life. And, and of course, because he's a Greek hero, he chose to go out in a blaze of glory. Odysseus is the interesting one because it's Homer's second poem that he's given uh, credit for, the Odyssey. Odysseus ticks off the god Neptune, and so he's doomed to just wander at sea for parts of decades uh, before he goes home. He has to get by temptations like the lotus eaters. He's captured by Circe, this goddess, who is like a supermodel, Olympian goddess. And she kind of takes a shine to old uh, Odysseus. And so she keeps him as a pet. She keeps him well-fed. Um, she has him in her bed every night because she likes to cuddle, apparently. Uh, but during the days... He sits out there on the beach, and he just looks out, and he thinks of his home in Ithaca, and his wife Penelope is waiting for him, and his son Telemachus that he hasn't seen in decades. And so the story of the 
uh, Odyssey is a homecoming. But you know, that idea, you can't go home again. The Odyssey uh, it has that. When he gets there, his home has changed. Penelope's a prisoner in her bedroom, weaving and unweaving to try to put off all the suitors that have showed up in the wake of Odysseus's departure. They're eating him out of house and home. They're abusing his concub- They're abusing the women and the servants in the house. And poor Telemachus's son has been chased off. He comes back, and it's once again war, and he has to kill all those suitors. And he comes back to a wife who's aged just like he has. Everything's changed. We get the word nostalgia from nostos. Nostos means homecoming. Nostalgia means an ache for home. And in that Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, and there we wept as we remembered Zion. It's this ache for home, this emptiness that's inside of us. Because in Psalm 137, it's both about the sorrow of uh, being separated from Jerusalem, their homeland, but it's also the anger at the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. We're in the readings for year B, and if you remember last week, um, it was Jesus cleansing the temple. But in this week, it's also really about the temple. The second Chronicles is about the destruction of the temple, and then the gospel is about Jesus drawing all people to himself when he's raised up. So what's this have to do with Nostos? What does this have to do with the ache that is in the heart of every human being, the ache that is in your and my heart? Let's together enter into the scriptures today and how it is that they diagnose the human condition that all people suffer from. And what, if anything, can we do about it? So let's start with the first reading from the Old Testament, Second Chronicles. You know, if you look at the Catholic version of the Old Testament, it ends with the book Malachi. And when, you know, you, you always ask, do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? You should be asking, do you believe in the inerrancy of the table of contents? Because somebody has to, has to determine what books go into the Bible and in what order. That is clearly the work of the church, or in the Jewish Bible, it's the work of the rabbis, the consensus amongst the, the rabbinic movement. But, you know, when I, the last book in the Christian New Testament, the Catholic New Testament, is Malachi, because it says at the end um, there will be a prophet sent. Uh, Elijah will return. I think mostly we remember that. And Jesus says that St. John the Baptist is Elijah. But in the Jewish um, Bible, the uh, Torah, the Navim, the Ketuvim, which is the five books of the law, the prophetic books, and then everything else, the wisdom literature, the histories. Well, Second Chronicles is one of the history books in the Old Testament. There's First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and they're written by different people back in the ancient world, but they cover the same story of the kings of, of, 
of Israel and the kings of Judah. In the first reading, we're in the very last chapter of the very last book in the Jewish Bible. And I want you to hear that because it makes you think about how it is that the Jewish Bible ends that is different from how the Catholic Bible ends. Because in there, there's something about a homecoming. And so in Second Chronicles chapter 36, if you go down to the very end, uh, it's recounted the whole story of how that people sinned against God, and God gave them second chances, and they ignored it. They just would not cooperate with God. So what happened? Well, the Babylonians show up on their doorstep. God abandons them to their enemies. The temple's destroyed. They're taken over to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans. There they're singing Psalm 137 about the rivers of Babylon where they laid down their harps. But in Second Chronicles, it's about the return. The very end of the Jewish Bible is about how they returned. And if you remember from the second reading, here's how that reading ended this Sunday. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has also charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. All among you, therefore, who belong to his people, may their God be with them. Let them go up. Boom. End of Bible. And so the story ends with the people leaving Babylon, returning to Jerusalem. In the uh, Navim, the, the books of the of the prophets. Ezra and Nehemiah are the stories about the rebuilding of the temples. It's a homecoming. But you know, it's a homecoming kind of like Odysseus's homecoming. Because when they get back to uh, Jerusalem, they're opposed by all their ancient enemies who were never deported by the Babylonians, who don't want them to rebuild their, their city walls. Um, who oppose their rebuilding of the temple. But still Ezra and Nehemiah prevail, and they build that temple. But the problem with it is this. They've gone back to Jerusalem, the promised land. They've made their homecoming, their nostos. They've rebuilt their temple, but there's something different. It's an endless successors of oppression. It's the Persians and it's the Greeks a little short period of the Maccabeans who are not of the Davidic line. They're just Jews that have taken over. Then there's the Romans. They go back, and their king is really no more. They rebuild the temple. When Solomon built the temple, and he consecrated it in First Kings, God's glory cloud descended on the first temple. Remember, the glory cloud is what comes down on the mountain Sinai when Moses against the law. That same glory cloud comes down on the first temp on the first temple. And it's this this scripture that the people have that this is God's approval. So they rebuild it. They have now the second temple, which uh, is the foundations really of the temple in Jesus' time. But they got no king, no glory cloud. They do have a story from the prophet uh, Ezekiel that God's glory has departed. And what the prophets tell them, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, but it's going to come back. 
God's glory will come back to the temple. God's glory will come back to Jerusalem. And so they wait. And they wait through an endless, not an endless succession, but hundreds of years of oppression. Um, and then King Herod. Uh, he's the king that builds this big, beautiful temple that's there in Jesus' time. But he's not really a, of the Davidic line. He's really an Edomite, an Idominian. He's a usurper of the throne. He's trying to curry favor and bring glory to himself. But still, it's not home. That is why in the first century, there is such turmoil. The place just isn't right. Sacrifice is being done there in Jesus' time. But somehow, something isn't right. And so, let's turn to the gospel. How do you make these homecomings right if you can't go home again and you can't redo what Solomon did? If all of your prophets who speak for God says, wait, God's going to do something for you. This is the story of the gospel, John's gospel, for the fourth Sunday of Lent, Leitari Sunday. So we turn to John's Gospel, chapter 3, most famous uh, chapter in the Gospel of John because we all remember the guy with the rainbow afro holding up John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? And uh, here we are right there. And so if you remember how uh, John 3 starts out, a Pharisee, a wealthy man named Nicodemus, he comes in the night and in John's gospel, light and dark, day and night, mean something. Christ, it says, is the light of the world. So when you come in darkness, you, like the people of Israel in, in John's gospel, John's a Jew, but he's talking about the darkness in Israel. Something's missing. And so when this teacher, this Pharisee of Israel, comes to Jesus, he comes to him in the darkness. And this is the scripture. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Amen, amen, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can a person once grown old be born again? Surely he cannot re-enter his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, what is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus' question, how can this happen? How can you go back and be born again? Nostos. Jesus says you, you can't be, go back and be born again unless. Okay, now he's got your attention. How can a person once grown old be born again? Surely he cannot re-enter his mother's womb and be born again, can he? 
Amen, amen, I say to you, Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the water and spirit. Okay, so Jesus, that this, this reading, this part of the reading, this is the first part of that third chapter. And then this is what Jesus says, and it's the reading for today. Jesus said to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And this is where the guy with the afro comes in. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. So what's the story Jesus is talking about when he says, unless you're lifted up? And that's a reflection. A reference back to Numbers chapter 21. Remember in the Torah, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Numbers chapter 21, it tells this story. The people are complaining. People are always complaining. Catholics complain all the time. People complain against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness where there's no food or water? We're disgusted with this wretched food. So the Lord sent among the people seraph serpents who bit the people so that many of the Israelites died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned in complaining against the Lord and you. Pray to the Lord to take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a seraph and mount it on a pole, and everyone who has been bitten will look at it and recover. Accordingly, Moses made a bronze serpent and mounted it on a pole. Whenever the serpent bit someone, the person looked at the bronze serpent and recovered. And so Jesus is comparing himself to this serpent, this source of healing um, in the desert. You know, when we think of the sacrifice of Christ, in the last thousand years, really, it's uh, the dominant idea is that uh, we've been judged guilty of sin only, and sin is an infinite offense against God, only an infinite um, sacrifice, a sacrifice of infinite value can pay back the damage that's done. And so the only person that could do that is Jesus. And, you know, it, it works, I guess, on paper. It just seems a harsh view of God. Here, when Jesus is talking about himself, he's talking about where healing comes from. We are not sinners that need to be judged and bought back in this story. In this story, Jesus has said, is we have an ache. We have a deep wound in our hearts. We have this complaint that makes us complain against God and against his heavenly food. And it needs to be healed. So what's the story remind you of? Well, let me, let me throw this out. Doesn't it sound like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? And they don't like the food that God's given them. So they want to eat something else. And they pick this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's the human problem? That we got this ache and we feed it the wrong way. What do we need? Do you remember what Jesus says in the temptation in the desert? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. We can't fix ourselves. We can't go home. We can't uh, self-help our way out of this ache for a homecoming to be born again. And so 
Let's pull this together by reading Paul's letter to the Ephesians, because this is the earliest Christian preaching about what it is that Christ does for us. In every human heart, there is an ache. That's why I say read the pagan Greeks, because they talk about it, and they try to reason their way through it. Agamemnon goes home, and he gets murdered by Clytemenstra. Odysseus goes home, and everything's changed. Well, reason can only take you so far. The world has only so many possibilities. At some point, you get tired of eating filet mignon. And so, how can you be happy in God's presence? Israel, in amongst the Chaldeans, there in the Babylonian captivity, they ached to go home to Jerusalem. When they got back there, everything had changed. Israel in the desert, they complained about the food. And so, um, nature turned on them. Uh, and everything in nature seemed to just bite them. When they looked at what was hurting them, they found healing there. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve complained about the food, uh, and they left a garden for a desert. Well, what about us? Um, at the heart of it, we get what the problem is, is that we can feel out of place anywhere. Pascal said, Blaise Pascal said, the problem with the human person is he can't sit in his room alone and be happy. He's, or G.K. Chesterton, you leave a kid alone long enough, pretty soon he's going to start torturing the cat. Um, just something about nature doesn't satisfy us. We're not satisfied with our own portion. So how are we made right? How are we healed? What can we do? St. Paul's letter to the uh, Ephesians uh, is not about self-help. Americas have the, Americans have a mania for self-help. Well, bookstores are full of self-help books, which don't really do anything. St. Paul's diagnosis is this. We can't heal ourselves. We are saved. We are healed. The ache is filled only by God's grace. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from you. It's the gift of God. It's not from works, so no one may boast. For we are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for the good works that God has prepared in advance, that we should live in them. Wow, doesn't that sound like Martin Luther? You know, uh, sola, sola fides, uh, salvation only through faith. Well, Luther is right. Remember the great Catholic, both and. is Yes, we're only saved through grace. There's nothing we could do to get God to send his son and for him to die on the cross. That is free, unmerited grace. God did that on his own. There is nothing we can do. So when we talk about salvation from faith, by faith, that's what we mean. Once you have accepted that, then salvation is this transformation of the human person. And it's uh, our prayer, our good works, our fasting, our almsgiving. This is all part of the work of Christians to cooperate with God's grace. We, are, we cannot deserve God's grace. It is a free gift. But unless we respond to it, 
um, that grace would be lost on us. Salvation is this process of growth and transformation, being made holy. And so um, Lent, Lent is about refocusing again on the works that Jesus told us. I mean, Jesus said, you're going to pray, you're going to give alms, and you're going to fast. We've had those readings. When you pray, don't stand out in a public place, but go into your room where God alone hears you. When you give alms, don't ring a bell in front of you. Don't let, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And when you're fasting, put on a nice set of clothes, shave, comb your hair so that it won't appear to others that you're fasting. And your heavenly Father who sees in secret will know. This is the life of grace. But going back to that story that Jesus tells, it has an end that was left out in the reading today. Do you remember Nicodemus comes at night? Nicodemus asks, how can you be born from above? Jesus says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, then you can't be born from above. And then Jesus says, just like the bronze spear, uh, serpent is lifted up, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And when this reading ends, the very next line in John chapter 3, verse 22 is this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the region of Judea, where he spent some time with them baptizing. Jesus goes from, you need to be born of water in the Spirit, and then he immediately goes to baptizing people, putting into sacramental practice what he's instructed Nicodemus. You know, the really great example of salvation um, by God's grace, uh, it's infant baptism. Infants don't have the capacity to believe. They're just, their brains aren't developed enough. Infants have no moral culpability for any wrong that they have done. But, and we call it original sin. They're born into the human condition. Those beautiful little babies that ache for their moms to be held and to be fed, they're getting their first bitter taste of nostos, this ache for something more that they themselves cannot fulfill. They find it at their mother's breast. They find it embraced by their father and their family. But for eternal salvation, it's when their parents bring them to baptism. Because presenting them to baptism as an infant is the reliance that God's grace will save this child. And so we tell parents when we baptize their babies, remember that this is the first step, the necessary step, the step nobody can do on their own. God does it for them. And in the case of when you baptized your babies, God was working through you. Now bring it to a good end. Teach this child what it means to be a Christian. Well, same for us, right? We never stop learning what it means to be a Christian. It's why every year we come back to these six weeks of Lent, these 40 days, and we pray, we fast, we give alms. It's because in each of our hearts there is an ache for home, a home we haven't seen, a home God prepares for us. In the Gospel of John, 
Jesus says he has to go away because he's preparing a place for us. Remember how I said that the Jewish Bible ended there in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, where the people come back, Cyrus the Great of Persia tells them, go build your temple, go build your city. That's not how the Christian Bible ends. The Christian Bible ends with chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. And it's not about rebuilding the temple. It's about going someplace else. And to remind you, here's what it says. Then the angels showed me the river of life-giving water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of its street, on either side of the river, grew the tree of life that produces fruit 12 times a year, once each month. The leaves of the tree serve as medicine for the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will look upon his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, nor will they need light from lamp or sun. For the Lord God shall give them light. They shall reign forever and ever. Amen. So why are Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden? So they won't eat the tree of, from the tree of life. Jesus says we're going home. This is Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold.